Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody. How many of you are thankful you got up and came to church this morning? Would you say amen today? Very grateful. What a wonderful thing to be in God's house, worshiping together and celebrating together. And we're glad that you're here today. We're glad all of you are with us over at the Spanish Trail campus. Welcome to those of you at Hillcrest uh, at the corner of Summit and Spanish Trail. We love you. Thank God for you. And to those of you that are worshiping with us online, we certainly welcome you as well. It's going to be a great, great day in the Lord. And listen, if you're around our area tonight, we invite you to come back here at the Nine Mile Campus at 5 o'clock this afternoon for a night of praise. It's going to be kind of a throwback. We're going to be visiting some music that's been around for a while, and we look forward to that. That's going to be a great time, and we'll serve the Lord's Supper in kind of a little bit different way than we normally do when we experience it in a regular way on Sunday morning. And so uh, we invite everybody to come back. It's going to be a wonderful and glorious time tonight. For those that are with us here this morning, we invite you to take your Bible and be finding the fourth gospel, the gospel of John chapter number five. If you're new to Hillcrest this morning, um, uh, we've just started last Sunday a brand new series of messages that we're calling the Jesus Method, a little bit of takeoff on the Socratic Method, which is basically teaching by asking questions. Jesus asked nearly 200 questions that are recorded in the gospel. I'm sure he asked a whole lot more than that over three years. But the gospel writers record uh, about 200 questions, a little bit shy of 200, that uh, reveal uh, Jesus' approach to teaching. He approached teaching in a number of different ways. Sometimes, you know, he told by a telling story. We call them parables. And they're about 40, 45, depending on what you quantify as a parable. There are about 44, 45 of those in the New Testament. Stories that Jesus told from everyday life that kind of point to a higher spiritual lesson that's supposed to be drawn from them. Jesus, of course, taught through dramatic actions. We call those miracles, but behind every miracle is a spiritual point of some time that's uh, some type that's designed to drive us to the true identity of the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's come to do. But then as frequently as anything, perhaps even more frequently, Jesus taught by asking questions. And what we're doing in this series leading up to Easter is trying to identify about a dozen or so of the most important, most powerful uh, questions that Jesus ever asked. And the reason that Jesus asked pointed questions is because he wanted to develop sharp disciples. And today we're going to look at one of the most unusual questions, if not the most unusual question, that Jesus ever asked. It's in John chapter 5. It's just as revealing, just as powerful, and just as important today as when he first asked it 2,000 years ago. And as with most of these questions, as we read our text, I'm sure the question will jump off the page when we get to it. John chapter 5, beginning in the verse first. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. 
Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Heavenly Father, this morning as we approach you and all of your glory and majesty and all of your holiness, we pray that your spirit would visit with us today. These will be nothing but words being read from a page unless your Holy Spirit illumines the hearts of every hearer that we might not only read them but hear them, truly hear them, not with our head but with our hearts. And I pray that you'll give us understanding and wisdom today that we might decide wisely in obedience to Jesus Christ to follow him and to love him with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray and all God's people said, amen. There are a couple of important things I want you to notice from this passage today. Two simple things I want to point out. The first is that we ought not be careful to overlook the grace of God in everyday life. Are you careful to notice the simple blessings that come into your life every single day from the loving, giving, providing hand of God? I think we take for granted so much of what happens in our lives or we give credit where credit is not due for the things that often happen to us or occur to us, the things that we experience and the things that we enjoy in life. I want you to make no mistake, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. I believe that we owe God a lot of thanks and a lot of gratitude. In fact, one of these questions is gonna deal with the subject of gratitude in a few weeks. But I hope that you realize how indebted you are to God for the goodness of every single thing in your life. So be very careful not to overlook the grace of God in your everyday life. This man needed to be thankful for what God alone had done for him, something that he never asked God to do in his life. This account begins with Jesus in Jerusalem. He's there, the Bible says, to observe one of the feasts. We don't know which one, we're not told, but at one point he finds himself passing by what amounts to a makeshift sanitarium there on the northeast side of the city of Jerusalem proper. There was a pool there just off the temple complex that was called Bethesda, a name that probably means house of mercy or house of healing. Scholars are divided about what the name actually means, but that's probably the best guess. It was a large pool that was surrounded by five colonnated porticos, uh, the, uh, these what, what, what we would call covered porches. 
there. And modern excavation there has affirmed the existence of that pool. I've been there more than once. Many of you from Hillcrest that have gone to Israel with us have been to the pool of Bethesda. It was a place for relaxation for many people. They would go there to wash and to bathe. But over time, it became a favorite place of those who were blind, lame, paralyzed. So as Jesus walks up, he sees around the pool a number of lame and disabled people sitting under the shade of those porticos. They were there because over time, tradition had taught that that was a place of curative restoration a place where the waters contained healing powers. Every so often, apparently, the water would begin to stir and to bubble. And, of course, we know now that that was because it was fed by an underground aquifer. And uh, that spring, because it was being fed from underground, every so often, the waters would surge into that pool and it would bubble up and begin to stir around. But those apparently who came to the pool didn't know that. They believed the superstition that taught that it was an angel from heaven, an angel from God, a celestial visitor that came down every so often and put his finger into the water and magically and mysteriously and supernaturally began to stir up the waters, leaving behind curative powers straight from the throne room of God. And the superstition was that whoever got into that water first, which ought to have been something to see since everybody around the water was diseased in some way, but whoever could get to the water first, most of the time probably the blind folks because at least they could move. But if they got to the water first, then they would be healed. Now, of course, that was not true, but in their desperation. See, people leave a lot of things when they're desperate. And conventional means of restoration and healing will not work. I've known people spend boatloads of money on a fool's errand because nothing else worked. That's what these people were doing. They, in their desperation, sought to get to the water first. They were willing to try anything in order to be healed. And this is what Jesus sees when he passes by. Multitude of invalids. And as he does, one particular man catches his eye. Uh, He's a disabled man, been bedridden, some form of paralysis for nearly 40 years, which, by the way, was the average lifespan of a man back in those days. And he'd never found anything that could restore him. And what you need to notice here, here's what's really important, is that Jesus is the one who approaches the man. The man is not the one who approaches Jesus. Jesus approaches the man. What's significant about that is that most of the healing miracles of Jesus, most of the time when he delivered somebody from a physical infirmity, people are intentionally coming to him for healing. They're usually coming to him or crying out as he passes by. They get some sense that this is a man of remarkable power, and they call on his name in order for him to deliver them. But this is different. This is a different scene. There's no indication that the man even has a clue who Jesus is, much less calls on his name as he passes by. Out of nothing but sheer grace and absolute mercy and compassion, Jesus goes up to this man, and he confronts him eyeball to eyeball, in his helpless condition. And he does so by asking him a rather ironic question, a very unusual question. It is our question of the day that Jesus asked. And the question, of course, is this, do you want 
to be healed. Now, that may be the most unusual question Jesus ever asked anybody. If I'd been lying there, if I'd not been able to walk for nearly 40 years of my life, I might have looked back at Jesus and say, are you kidding me, man? That's like asking a a drowning man if he needs a hand. Of course I want to be here. I mean, I'm here with all these other people. It seems like a very unnecessary question. And so why in the world would Jesus even ask it? Well, some on the left theologically might say, well, Jesus didn't know what was going on. He was rather ignorant about the situation. He didn't know the connection between the pool and the physical healing. And so some suggest ignorance here, but we certainly would reject that, would we not? I mean, I've said before, whenever Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information, amen. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what's going on. He is omniscient Lord, all-powerful God, God in human flesh. God, Jesus doesn't need anybody to inform him of anything. In fact, John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus knew that the man had been there for a long time. And there's no doubt that he knew that the lame regularly gathered there in those porticos for the purposes of finding healing. So I don't think it was that Jesus didn't know. Some say maybe Jesus was just waiting on the man to voice his desire to be healed, to first put his trust in Jesus to do it. And that was sometimes the case, perhaps even most often the case, when Jesus would heal. Sometimes he would even ask, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And upon a response of faith, then Jesus would provide some kind of healing touch or some kind of delivering grace, but this man never expresses any kind of faith, never, and yet he still gets healed. So I don't think Jesus is necessarily looking for the man to express some kind of faith in him. In fact, to be honest with you, I mean, can we just be honest from the pulpit this morning? There's very little to like about this guy. It's not Jesus. There's a lot to like about Jesus. I'm talking about the guy that was healed. I mean, he's going to eventually rat Jesus out to the authorities. There's never an indication that he's grateful, never an indication that he's thankful for what the Lord has done. But he never directly voices a desire to be healed. Jesus asks him the question and he never says, yes, heavens yes. Can you help me? Seems rather strange to me given the situation. But I don't think that Jesus is waiting for the man to voice his desire to be healed because he never does that and yet he's healed anyway which raises the distinct possibility, and I'm just going to throw it out there, that even in the face of what this man says, deep down, he may not really have wanted to be healed. Maybe that's why Jesus asked him the question point blank, do you want to be healed? Because I'm pretty sure that there are lots of people in the world going through disability of some kind, despair, discouragement, grief, whatever the case might be, that if we put a truth meter on them, the truth be told, they really don't want to be healed. Have you ever noticed that though they'd never admit it, sometimes people who are obviously messed up really don't seem to want to be delivered. I've known people who practically identified themselves by their disability or by their medical condition. You know the kind, don't you? They come up to you and the first thing out of their mouth was the last thing out of their mouth that had something to do with their bad back or their bursitis or something along those lines or something about a 
physical relationship or a personal relationship that's gone bad, whatever the case may be, they practically identify themselves by their disability or their personal plight or by their medical condition. They're broken and they know they're broken and help is available. But if they were healed in their mind, they might be giving up the one distinctive in their life that makes them stand out, the one means by which they publicly identify themselves. I've known men and women who are in the wrong kinds of situations, the wrong kind of habits, the wrong kinds of relationships. They know it's wrong and they know that not, God's not pleased, but they refuse to change. They refuse to get help because honestly, they don't want to give it up. It's like they're on a roller coaster. And even though they know it's wrong biblically, they don't want to give up the thrill. Lots of troubled marriages out there, but not everybody will pay the price to do the hard work to bring healing and holiness back into their marriage. Truth be told, they don't want to be healed. They can be healed, but they don't want to do what it takes to be healed. There are people out there with serious addictions, people addicted to gambling, people addicted to compulsive spending, people addicted addicted to illicit websites, illegal drugs, prescription drugs. And they might even admit that they have a problem, but help is something that they will not seek because it's something, frankly, they do not want. It's not that they can't be healed, frankly. It's that they won't be healed. And that's why even though this seems like a really unusual question for Jesus to ask, can I just say it today? It's legit. Think about this man. He probably made a decent enough living off of the compassionate gifts of Jewish passersby. He didn't have to do anything to earn it because the Jews were taught that giving to the poor, giving alms to the poor, got them credit with God. So he probably did okay. He probably never missed a meal. He had no marketable skills. I mean, if he got healed and was restored to wholeness, he'd probably lived his entire life, never worked a day in his life, obviously. But he had no marketable skills, would have had to start working to support himself. Some people might see that's too much of an inconvenience, not really want the responsibility that it would bring. Now, he's by that pool, and his presence by the pool might indicate that he's looking for healing. But here's the thing. That pool was never going to heal him. Tradition said you had to be the first one in the pool when the water began to stir, invalids everywhere. The odds of that happening for any single one of them, not real good. And some were there, probably had friends with them. He apparently did not. And it wouldn't have mattered nonetheless, even if he had been the first one down. There's no guarantee that healing was there. There was no healing in that water. That water was a false hope. Even if he did want to be healed, he's looking for healing in the wrong place. Amen. Because he wasn't going to find it there. That's fool's gold. That was a pool of perpetual misery, nothing but superstition. So even if it did heal, he'd never find it. He's too broken to get there on his own. His only hope to find healing is the man that's standing right in front of him asking him the ridiculous question, which as it turns out, is really not so ridiculous. Do you want to be healed? 
No evidence that this man in any way knew Jesus, understood who Jesus was, understood that Jesus had the power to do it, and yet Jesus chooses to heal him anyway. Not because he demonstrates faith. Jesus heals him for a particular purpose, out of nothing but grace. Jesus heals him because he wants to demonstrate both to the man and to everybody around, particularly to the Jewish authorities who were around, he wants to convince them who he is. He wants to identify himself as the one who has the power and authority to heal and deliver whomever he likes, whenever he likes. And there's no doubt that he does it very intentionally here because it was which day of the week? It was the Sabbath day, that's right. And there's no doubt Jesus does it intentionally on the Sabbath, not just to communicate something to the man that's gonna be healed about himself, but to communicate to those who would criticize Jesus for doing it on the first day or on the seventh day of the week, the Jewish Sabbath. He's kind of wanting to poke the Jewish authorities in the eye just a little bit over the faulty interpretation they had about the Sabbath day and what a person could do or could not do on the Sabbath. Jesus is trying to show them as he did many times in his ministry. This is certainly not the first time he healed on the Sabbath, nor would it be the last, but he's showing the Jewish leadership that he himself and he alone is in fact the Lord on the Sabbath, and it is actually a very good thing to do good works to people on the Sabbath day. That's what it was created for. It was created for things like healing and justice and mercy mercy and compassion and because Jesus keeps healing people on the Sabbath this was the primary reason that the Jews ultimately washed their hands of him and from this point forward particularly in the gospel of John they begin to plot how to be rid of him they begin to plot to kill him and what's important to note here is that Jesus heals this man not only to show something to those Jewish leaders, but he heals him out of nothing more than an act of grace and mercy in order to draw attention to himself so that he would know who he was and what he alone could do. And let me just say this morning, that's what Jesus does to every single one of us. Again, the Bible says in the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes down from where? From above, from the Father of lights, the Bible says, who does not change. There is no variation with God. There is no shadow of turning. Have you ever stopped to consider what we might call the blessings of common grace that happen every day in your life, the blessing of life itself, the blessing of family, the blessing of health, the blessing of home, the blessing of ability, the blessing of opportunity, the blessing of church, the blessing of the natural world all around us, all of these daily gifts that we get to enjoy from the sunrise in the morning to the sunset at night and everything in between. I'm just saying this morning, if you can touch it, if you can smell it, if you can experience it, if you can own it, if you can inherit it, be sure that the source of that gift and every other gift in your life comes from a loving Father who is full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy, and abounding in love for people just like you and me. Never Get to the point in your life where you overlook the everyday grace of God and the blessings 
of God's compassionate mercy. None of us deserve those heavenly gifts, these merciful touches from heaven. We don't deserve them in any way, so be careful not to overlook the grace of God in your everyday life. But second, be careful not to overlook the greatest need of your life. Because there are things in life that are more important than physical blessings. The thing about this man is that he was healed, but he was only partially healed. He's only physically healed. There's a part of his life that's not healed. Jesus heals him in his body. But our Lord's trying to send a message both to the Jewish leadership and to the paralyzed man at the same time. The invalid needs to understand that he had an even greater need for which he needed to be delivered. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that he ever gets the picture of that, no evidence that he ever responds to Jesus with saving faith. You see, the man had a diseased body, but even more to the point, he had a diseased soul. He had a soul that was bound up in sin. He was spiritually dead. All at the same time, he was physically infirmed. And that's the greatest need of his life. Remember, the question we looked at last Sunday was what? Well, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own what? Soul, that's right. So physical healing does have some benefit, obviously. But even if you get physically healed and still have a diseased soul, you're still in really bad shape, eternally bad shape. And this man apparently never gets that. He never responds to Jesus with faith. He never receives healing for the greatest need of his life. So he's healed, and apparently what he does is he rolls up his mat, tucks it under his arm, and simply walks away. For the first time in four decades, the man walks, but he walks away from Jesus with an unchanged heart and an unsaved soul. Jesus is going to find him later. He's going to be at the temple, which shouldn't be really surprising. The man had never been able to go into the temple his entire life. His disability kept him from that. And Jesus' word to him when he finds him at the temple, I think, is very telling. He says, behold, you're well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. That really is kind of a veiled call to faith. What Jesus is saying to the man with this simple statement is, look, here's the deal. I've given you a new start physically. I've poured grace into your life, and I've restored your body. I've enabled you to get up off of that dirty, stinking, filthy, rotten mat that you've been laying on for nearly 40 years of your life. I have graciously delivered you. I've given you a new start. But that's not the most important part of your life. What's more important is that you find the spiritual healing that I alone can give you because there are worse things in life than being physically disabled. There are worse things in life than being financially broke. There are worse things in life than having to live with the grief of the passing of a loved one. As hard as that is, there are worse things in life than going through an incredibly difficult 
shift where you work. There are worse things in life than what we experience every day that we would typically call adversity. Like being eternally separated from God. When this very brief speck of life, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years comes to an end, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? And that's why the question is on the table today, do you want to be healed? One of the things that you need to recognize here is that you are this guy. I am this man here. He represents every single one of us who come into this world physically disabled, not physically disabled, but spiritually disabled. And sometimes even when the Lord does gracious and merciful and compassionate things, like giving us the air we breathe every day, the roof over our heads, the cover on our back, the direct deposit into our bank account, even in the face of all of these blessings of the common grace of God to every single one of us, we are confronted with a Savior whose mercies are new every morning, who measures out grace upon grace to people who don't deserve it, a Savior who can restore us to eternal wholeness. Whenever we're even confronted with that, truth be told, when it comes to the spiritual part of our life, we don't want to be healed. And once again, why? The culprit is always the I mean, who would say no to the gift of eternal life? Who in their right mind would turn their back on Jesus Christ in the face of all of his compassionate grace and mercy and then walk away still rooted in self-centeredness with no ounce, no modicum of gratitude whatsoever? Why would anybody in their right mind turn their back on a Savior and Lord who died for them, who alone can give them the most valuable commodity in all of life, which is life hereafter forever with God the Father in a perfect place? Only one thing, the cost. What it would cost us in the here and now. See, the reason some people don't want to be healed is that they'd have to admit they've been wrong all this time. They'd have to admit that life is all about them, that they've been God in their own life. They'd have to admit they've got everything under control or they thought they did. And following Jesus is an admission that you don't have everything under control, that you're broken. So you have to swallow your pride. You have to admit your own inadequacies. You have to change your priorities. You might even have to be willing to suffer a little bit of grief from some family that think you're nuts. Or for some friends that won't have anything to do with you anymore and start living for somebody and someone greater than yourself. You have to surrender control of your life. And you have to follow Jesus as Lord. Jesus heals that man. But not because he trusted Jesus to do it. He does it to reveal an even greater need in his life. It's a sovereign act of grace that demonstrates that Jesus is who he said he was and that Jesus alone can do what he's promised to do, that he alone has the power to heal the deepest part of your life. 
is just as gracious and just as merciful to every single one of us and all of those precious gifts that God gives you are from his compassionate heart to you in order, in part anyway, to capture your attention, draw and arrest your focus on him so that you might understand through eyes wide open that there's a deeper part of your life that's broken and only Jesus can heal it. So be careful that you don't overlook the greatest need of your life. Jesus might heal your body apart from faith. He might heal your bank account apart from faith. He might heal your broken relationship apart from faith. He might heal your job situation apart from faith. But one thing he won't do is save your soul apart from faith. That requires a decision on your part. There are worse things than physical disabilities, and that's why you need to believe because something worse, just as with that guy, something worse can surely happen to you. Jesus has the power to change your life, and Jesus has the power to save your soul, which makes the question not only legit but critically important. Do you want to be healed?